Most of us spend about 46.9% of our days daydreaming anyway. So why not learn to unfocus in a more productive way? Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we're talking with Dr. Srini Pillay. He is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and a mainstream psychiatry expert who can help apply brain science to everyday psychological challenges to help deal with psychiatric issues, especially as they relate to stress and anxiety. There's a whole lot more to this guy other than that, of course, and that's what we're going to get to here on this episode of AOC. Today, we'll learn how focus and unfocus, something he calls unfocus anyway, work in the brain. 90 to 98% of mental activity is unconscious. Focus can only get you so far, and we'll explore the unfocused side of things. We'll also explore how something called positive, constructive daydreaming can help us become more creative, and we'll discover the concept of possibility thinking. It sounds a little woo-woo, but I promise it can help us solve seemingly intractable problems. There's a whole lot more here. We went a little bit long with Dr. Pillay, and it was worth it. So enjoy this episode of AOC with Dr. Srini Pillay. The book is very much in line with what we teach here at AOC in that we're talking about a superpower that everybody has, but a lot of people have not yet discovered. And movies and comic books and things like that, of which Jason and I are, of course, somewhat fans, some people more than others, right, Jason? There's a lot of superpowers involved in the human psyche and in the brain that we really don't know about. And a lot of us think if we just try hard enough, if we just focus hard enough, maybe we can discover those, or maybe we can hone those, or maybe we can make those happen. And what I thought was really interesting about Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try was it's almost like trying less. There's a process to everything, but it's a little bit like doing less in certain ways anyway, and getting more out of your brain. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. I think that's a great summary of what the fundamental message is. And the reason I'm so committed to this message, aside from a lot of subjective reasons, is that if you ask most neuroscientists how much of brain activity is conscious, most people would probably say about 2 to 10%, which means approximately 90 to 98% of mental activity is unconscious. And so if that's the case, you know, in most organizations and for most people, they dedicate all of their energy to the conscious stuff, like let me find a strategy or let me follow a plan or let me follow somebody else's structure on how to become successful. And that's just 2% of mental activity. So I tell people that when you think about strategy or plan or any kind of you know three-step process, that's really like a plant. But the plant needs to have its roots in a very rich, unconscious soil. And in order to do that, we need to learn how to till the soil of the unconscious so that the roots can really dig in deep, get a good hold so that the plant can grow. So having a strategy is really important. Focusing is really important. But if you're really looking to make a major change in your life, potentially in an exponential way, then learning how to till the soil of the unconscious is where I think the action is. And this book is about learning how to till the soil of the unconscious. When you say concrete strategies, can you define what that means in comparison to unconcrete strategies? Sure. So, you know, like so a lot of times if you ask somebody, well, how do I make $100,000 more or how do I make a million dollars more? A lot of people would say, well, this is what you need to do. You need to identify what your mission is. Then you need to identify some kind of plan, set out a strategy and execute on that plan, set benchmarks and move towards your goal. Well, 
a lot of studies show that generally that doesn't really work. In fact, even for sort of prominent businesses, only 30% of strategies are successfully executed. And of those that are, most CEOs believe that they're too slow. So we know that having a plan is important, but having a plan is essentially like having a car. You still need to have the fuel in the car, which, as you said, is the superpower, which I call ingenuity or psychological center of gravity. And so I think for a lot of people, and I've seen this a lot in my coaching practice, and I've seen it a lot in my psychiatry practice as well, you know, people are pretty smart when it comes to figuring out, you know, a 10-step process to get somewhere or a plan to go from A to B. But over the years, it's really surprised me that despite the fact that people have very significant plans, and a lot of them actually execute on those plans, they don't even get close to where they want to get to. And part of that, a lot of recent brain imaging research has shown that when people say, I need to do X, Y, or Z to get somewhere, they do the thing, but the thing they forget about is the I. The unfocused circuits in the brain are actually largely responsible for the sense of self and self-awareness. So if you want to follow a strategy, to focus on the you part, unfocused really needs to be part of what's being activated. Okay, so we have to use these different, it's not necessarily a different section of the brain, it's actually the spaces in between is kind of what you talk about in the book. You mentioned forks versus spoons. Can you discuss that? That was really interesting to me, and the visual, I think, makes this make a lot more sense to guys like me. Sure thing. So when you focus, and again, I, you know, I want to emphasize, I think focusing is very important. You know, like if I didn't focus in the time of this interview, I wouldn't have come to the computer at this time. Right. If I'm not listening to your questions, you know, I'm going to be in some la-la land. So focusing is extremely important. When you focus and focus and focus, essentially, the parts of your identity that are being represented are metaphorically the parts of your identity that can be picked up by a fork. So it's a little bit like your LinkedIn profile. Like what's your name? What's your age? If you feel like you're gender specific, what that is, what kind of work you do, you know, where you've worked, it's sort of all the concrete stuff about you. But when the unfocused circuits are turned on, then the brain metaphorically invites other utensils to the table. So the brain will invite, for example, a spoon to pick up the delicious melange of flavors of identity that need to be present in any mission. For example, the scent of your grandmother or the smell of apple pie on a crisp fall day. It may seem like it has nothing to do with finishing a project, but if all of these subtle elements of yourself are not present, your actual whole authentic self is weakened. In addition to inviting a spoon to the table, the brain also invites chopsticks, which metaphorically connect ideas across the brain. So most human beings are filled with paradoxes. You know, people are maybe introverts and also incredibly powerful. People may feel like they're happy, but they're also lonely. And in our day-to-day -day activity, we tend to polarize how we are. But when you stimulate the unfocused circuits, then these two sides of yourself get represented at the same time. And that allows you to be much more powerful in executing your actions. In addition to that, the unfocused circuits also metaphorically invite a marrow spoon to the table. So it digs into all the nooks and crannies of your memory circuits finds memories and fragments about who you are and represents that as well. So all of a sudden, with focus alone, you have pretty much your LinkedIn profile, which for most people, it's not really who you are. It's what you've done and it's your qualifications, but you don't really get a sense of who this person is. When you invite all the other stuff that comes with the spoon and the chopsticks 
and the marrow spoon, now you're talking, because now you're talking about the fact that you are operating with your strengths, your vulnerabilities, a set of memories that feels more complete, and you have much more data at your disposal. So what I say to people is in general, while focus is important, if you focus throughout the day, you will be missing out on the richness of yourself. And if you look at a lot of very successful people, some people will say things like, oh my God, I can't believe they're so obnoxious, or why is that person so anxious, or why is that person not socially fluent, or lots of critiques. They don't know how to come across as a fluent, non-conflictual person. Well, that's because they've got a lot of themselves online at any one point in time. And so I would say to anyone who's listening to this, ask yourself, is there something about you and who you are that's not being represented in your life right now? and would unfocus, meaning moving away from your day-to-day activities, help you to build that in? How do we know if there's something that's not being represented in our lives right now? How do we know if there's something where, is it a feeling we get like, oh, I'm in my career and I'm doing well, but there's something missing? I mean, where are we looking for this? If we need a marrow spoon to get it, we might not readily be able to point it out without uh, some sort of guidance. Absolutely. Yeah, so because a lot of this activity is unconscious, it's not something that's going to readily appear to your mind. So one of the things we want to hypothesize is if things are going a little too slowly, if you're not able to make as much money as you want in a certain amount of time, and you feel like, you know, the thing looks okay, but I really don't like the speed at which this is happening. If you hit a wall, if you want a relationship and you're finding, you know, I'm a pretty okay person, like why am I not meeting anybody and what am I doing that's standing in my way? So basically, if there's any slowing down, hitting walls, not reaching your goal, or finding yourself making mistakes over and over again, you want to begin to suspect that perhaps there are obstacles in your way. And then you hypothesize about that and try out some of these interventions so that you can improve the way in which your brain works and strengthen your sense of self. So this stuff is really important because it is informed by science. There's a lot of hype in this area. There's a lot of woo-woo in this area where it's like, it would be very easy to say, well, okay, if something's missing in your life, then unfocus. Here's a book that teaches you how to do it. It's only 20 bucks, right? It just seems like you can crawl down that path or slip and fall down that path pretty easily when it comes to this subject area. So you mentioned that there are certain interventions that we might need to take, and if we're feeling a certain way or not seeing a certain type of result, we might find that unfocus will help us. Can you give us something that we can try so that we can say, okay, maybe I think I'm not quite getting ahead in in my career, or maybe I'm good in my career, but my coworkers don't like me or something like that, and I don't really know why. Maybe this is something unfocus can help me with. Where do we begin with the process, concretely or unconcretely? So the first thing I'll say is that most of us spend about 46.9% of our days daydreaming anyway. So why not learn to unfocus in a more productive way? Now, when I first say to people, let's figure out how you're going to unfocus, because they're so freaked out about reaching their goals, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, that's the thing I hate. Like, I hate being distracted. I hate not reaching my goals. Mm -hmm. And I say, unfocus is not about distraction. It's about, in order to start slowly, identify those points in your day when you're in a natural slump anyway. So for a lot of people, it's either mid-morning or after lunch mid-afternoon is a big one, or at the end of the day, because most people are living their days with focus fatigue. And so that's the end of that. So the brain starts off in this really great optimal capacity, and then goes lower and lower and lower. However, if you go focus, unfocus, focus, unfocus, you're replenishing your brain throughout the day. So everything that you're doing, whether it's at eight o'clock, 
or 10 o'clock or after lunch, your brain is getting replenished and you're actually using more of your brain. Now, in order to think about some of these techniques, I'll mention a couple of more concrete ones first. And if we if we want to get funky and get more abstract afterwards, we can do that as well. So the first technique I'll mention is positive constructive daydreaming, which has been studied by Jerome Singer since the 1950s. Now, the very mention of the word daydreaming sounds kind of strange. It's like, what are you talking about? How is that going to help? Right. It doesn't sound super productive. If I had to point out one thing my teachers hated about me in school, of the many, it was that I did a lot of daydreaming while I was supposed to be focused instead. So Jerome Singer found that if you slip into a daydream, that's not helpful. And if you are constantly ruminating, that's not helpful. But what is helpful is if you engage in positive, constructive daydreaming. Three things to remember about how this is different from the regular kind of daydreaming. The first thing is plan it for about 15 minutes at one of these slump times, you know, where you'd be out of it anyway. The second thing is be doing something low-key, like walking or gardening, potentially something like knitting, because studies show if you try this daydreaming when you're doing nothing, it doesn't work as well. You have to be doing something low-key. The third thing is, in order to initiate it, you think of attention like a flashlight, which basically points outwards. The whole day, we're perceiving the world, right, with our sense organs. Now, if you take that flashlight and point it inwards, basically start wandering through your mind, you initiate positive, constructive daydreaming by starting with a vision that is positive and wishful and potentially creative. So positive and wishful, something like lying on a yacht, if you have a dream about something, you know, going into a tennis court, if you want to be really sort of big-minded about it, the butler bringing out drinks to you once you're finished. Or if you feel like for you, it's something like running through the woods with your dogs, you start with that. And your mind then starts wondering. But what's interesting about this from a scientific perspective is that studies show that what we consider to be mind-wandering is not just some random process that's occurring, that actually the lateral cortex, which is part of the guiding brain, is guiding your brain to actually find something of relevance. Now, what positive constructive daydreaming does, Singer has shown this, and since then, it's been shown in a number of studies, is that it improves your creativity. Because prior to that, your focused mind is just going in very specific ways. It's not making connections across the brain. But when you're daydreaming and your mind is wandering, you know, it goes a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left, collects a little bit from here. And so you start mixing and matching things and ideas, and new ideas are born. So first thing I would say in terms of interventions is consider positive constructive daydreaming, Build it into a 15-minute period. Do those three things, meaning decide when you're going to do it. Have playful or wishful imagery while you are doing something low-key, and you'll have that covered. The second thing, which I think is pretty easy, is about 5 to 15 minutes of napping. So there are a lot of big companies that have now actually instituted napping pods and napping rooms because they recognize that people are actually more productive after napping. The studies have shown that about 5 to 15 minutes of napping can give you 1 to 3 hours of clarity. And we all know what that feeling is like after lunch, right? It's like after lunch, all everything feels like you want to close your eyes. You feel like it's siesta time. You're in a food coma. You can't quite concentrate. So one of the things to think about is, well, why don't I just actually take a nap? Because if I'm going to be out of it, why not actually be out of it in a way that's going to be productive for my brain? And other studies have shown that 60 to 90 minutes of napping is what is needed for the brain to become more creative. Because when you're napping in that state, you're activating REM sleep, 
And during this deeper sleep, you're able to bring ideas together and form these more creative ideas. The third sort of more superficial technique I'll mention is doodling. Probably another thing that your teachers would have shouted, shouted at you about. Like, Sure, absolutely, yes. It's like, Jordan, pay attention. Like, why are you scribbling on a piece of paper? You know, a lot of people attempted to do this on conference calls, right? So in the book, what I do is I, I describe some of the research and, and the rationale behind this. But Jackie Andrade and her colleagues did a study in which they showed they asked two groups of people, one group that doodled and another group that didn't doodle, to listen to a very boring message. And it, because it was so boring, it was hard to retain the information. And they asked them to then recall eight names and eight places. And what they found was that doodling improved memory by 29%, which is a pretty startling finding. And if you try to understand why, there are two things that are going on. When you're scribbling on a piece of paper, it's not just your conscious focus brain that's at work. Your unconscious is at work, and the unconscious, as we know, shuttles around memories and makes connections and makes associations, so it's going to allow you to remember better. But metaphorically, the way to think about this is that when you're doodling and you're not in a hyper-focused state, your brain is more like an absorbent sponge. So when it gets the information, the information is retained. Whereas when you're stiff and super-focused, you may be paying attention, but actually it's very difficult to remember information. One of the things to remember about focus, and this is one of the many disadvantages of focus, is that focus can deplete the thinking brain of energy. So this phenomenon has been studied a lot. It's called self-regulation depletion. The authors who have studied this have found, for example, if you ask two sets of people to watch a video and one group stares at the video, whereas the other group just looks at the video as usual, the group that's super focusing on the video, afterwards, if you ask them a moral question, like, what would you do to save these people? They couldn't care less. Whereas the people who are not focusing have enough energy that they think about it. And if you give glucose to the group that's focusing, they start to care again. So we want to remember that there's some advantage to not being super stiff when you're trying to absorb information. I think to remember this clearly, if you watch the tennis, is something that I love. And I think a lot of times you'll see great players, when they tighten up, they can't really play well. They're not in the flow state anymore. They're not activating what they want to activate. In fact, you know, Roger Federer did so well this year, and everyone's talking about the fact that for tennis, he's 36 years old. He won the Australian Open. He won Wimbledon. And someone asked his coach, well, what does he feel about IBM Watson's stats? And he was like, Roger doesn't look at the stats. And they're like, why? He, said, he specifically says, I don't want to look at the stats. Like, I don't want to stiffen up and think, well, if I'm going on my forehand, I'm going to do this, or my backhand. I play tennis well enough. I want to be in that flow state most of the time. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, Srini Pillay. We'll get right back to the show after these messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. And now back to Jordan and Srini Pillay. It sounds to me like one of the key concepts for me that would apply is the idea that focus really is very specific and very conscious. So if I'm looking at a shelf full of Legos and I think I know what I wanna build, the focused mind would go, all right, here's a little Lego guy, here's four little Lego tires, here's a flat part that's gonna be the bottom of the car, here's the windshield piece, and I'm picking those pieces out, whereas the unfocused mind would just kind of reach out, grab handfuls of these in an armful of these Legos, rip all of them off the shelf, and then go, all right, I got a bunch of Legos in front of me. Wow, I can build a whole lot of things. I don't have to build a car. There's a lot of things here. Or I can build a car that's three stories tall and has 15 people in it, or a car that can fly, because I got some wings here. And so this unfocus really gives you a lot more to play with 
to beat this metaphor to death in that you can really get some different ideas put together based on what your unfocused mind is able to dredge up from your brain that you would not have seen had you specifically looked for just what you thought you wanted at the time. Absolutely. You know, I, I think another really important paper on the unfocused circuit was a paper that basically had the words crystal ball in it. The first time I came across, I was like, is this like real science? It sounds not like nonsensical. And when I read through the paper, what I found was that it was totally sensible because, you know, for us to do anything, there are like small predictions and big predictions, right? So small predictions would be if you're looking at your navigator and you're looking at where the traffic patterns are, or if you're lying on a beach and you're looking at clouds coming your way and you're like, uh oh, there's going to be a storm. Your brain can put together this information and start to create prediction circuits. But there are people like Ray Kurzweil, for example, who are just notorious or really well known for making predictions about the future of technology that most people are like, what? Like, how did this guy figure this out? Like, what is he doing to make this happen? Well, in our brains, the unfocused circuits are the prediction circuits, because in order to create a prediction formula, you need to have the right data so that the brain can process this and crunch the data and then figure out what's the likelihood of something happening. Well, to have the right data, you need that marrow spoon to be digging in the nooks and crannies so that it can find all the little bits of information that you couldn't otherwise find. There was one author who described why Kurzweil is so successful at this and said that while the rest of us are mucking around in the mud trying to figure out how to get up, Kurzweil sort of rises above the mud and has a completely different perspective because he's not stuck in focus. He's moving around and looking at the world from different angles. And when you look at the world from different angles, you get more data from different angles. And this actually helps your prediction circuit. So the unfocused circuits are also really important for prediction as well. That's interesting. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that because it seems like prediction involves creativity in a way, but it sounds like what you're saying is this type of unfocus can actually make us more creative. Is that possible? That's correct. Absolutely. It can make us more creative and it also makes us more agile, right? Because, you know, think about the way the workforce is today or how jobs are changing all the time. Like I see a lot of kids who are coming out of college or people who are trying to figure out careers, they're like, I don't know what to do. The moment I think about this technology, it's changed to that. I think about this. And a lot of people in the workforce are saying, yeah, you know, it's one thing to talk about agility, but how am I going to catch up? Well, we can't catch up if we're stiff and super focused. We have to figure out how to relax so that we can gather more data and change with the times as we need to, while still being productive at every phase in which we're invested. And at some point, it gets really frustrating because if you're someone who wants to be hunkered down and focused, the first time you're like, okay, that's irritating. The second time you're like, okay, that's super irritating. The third time you're like, I'm exhausted. Like, I don't even want to do this. I'm so bummed out because I can't get to where I want to get to because things keep changing. Whereas if you have someone whose mind is flexible and agile and on the move, they're like, uh-oh, looks like I got to go this way. Uh-oh, it looks like I got to go this way. That doesn't mean you have to be a dilettante. It doesn't mean you have to go whichever way the wind blows. It means that for the time that you're in, you can be in. But when you see the signals for change, you can be responsive to those signals for change. One related concept to this is the whole idea of thinking across fields as well. I had a question this morning from the media saying, how do you defend yourself if you've been job hopping? Like, you know, if someone's like, oh, so you're applying for this job, you went there for one year, there for another year, there for another year, how do we know you're going to stay? Here? Right. One of the things I said was, well, you can actually 
say that every step of the way you learned more about yourself and more of what you wanted and you feel like where you're ending up is much closer to where you want to be, which is where you're going to be engaged. But you can also say that you can learn a lot across fields and across domains, right? The two examples I mentioned in the book are examples that are close to my heart. So one is Einstein and the fact that he had a think tank and he followed the theories of Poincaré, who was the famous mathematician who was absolutely brilliant. And so they would discuss these mathematical theories of Poincaré, but Poincaré was a realist, meaning he never asked the questions, what if this was possible? He was like, what do I see? Whatever the data is, I can see. And so he ended his theory where he stopped seeing data. Einstein, on discussing Poincaré's theories, and mathematics was not even Einstein's primary discipline, actually asked the question, what's possible, by borrowing information from another field, was able to come up with the theory of relativity. And what's so cool about that time was that Picasso, who was an artist who had his own group of avant-garde literati, you know, they were talking about math because they wanted to understand, like, what are the principles of math that could inspire art? On hearing about the fourth dimension, Picasso created one of his most famous paintings, La Demoiselle d'Avignon, which represented a woman in two dimensions. And from this, cubist art was born. So, you know, Steve Jobs is the other sort of famous example of someone who took a calligraphy class, had no idea why he was taking this calligraphy class, but this came to you several years later when he was developing fonts for Apple. I say to those people who are feeling lost and those people who are feeling like, I don't know what to do and I don't know where my real passion is, recognize that you can be engaged in something of interest, switch fields and make connections. And the more you learn how to use this unfocused brain, the easier it will be to make connections you know, across different disciplines. That sounds a lot like what Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, had mentioned when he talked about skill stacking. I don't know if you've heard this term, but it's essentially his idea is that Look, if you want to be in the 99th percentile as a physicist, that's really hard. But if you want to be in the 75th percentile as a physicist, it's a lot easier. But if you want to be a 75th percentile physicist and a 75th percentile oil painter and a 75th percentile computer coder, you can mash those together into some kind of creative work that the 95th or 99th percentile physicist cannot or wouldn't even think to do. And then suddenly you're unique and you're a specialist and you're the 100th percentile physicist, computer coder, oil painter, because you're the only one, right? And so you become much more versatile, valuable, and creative based on the intersection of those disciplines that you choose to pursue without becoming the Srini Pillay of the field. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure about the Srini Pillay part, but I, I think <laughs> You're that... welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think the whole point of the book is connecting with your own ingenuity, right? But yeah, <laughs> I actually had somebody challenge me on this recently talking about this because I, I do a lot of different things, right? I, besides psychiatry and coaching, I work in biotechnology. I'm writing a musical right now. I'm doing wow. like a lot of different things. And so when I was sitting with a friend of mine, he was like, you know, so what are your financial goals? Like how are you? I said, well, you know, I don't really have a goal goal right now because I'm trying to figure out how all of this fits together. Like I, I want my musical to be a combination of brain science, music, and technology because mm -hmm. I have a few tech startups that I'm working on and I, I want them to come together. And people think this all sounds so disparate, but it just doesn't, it doesn't feel that disparate to me. And he laughed and he said, oh, you definitely don't want to be a billionaire. And I said, why is that? He said, oh, because you're not focused on one project. 
And I said, well, firstly, it's not true that I don't want to be a billionaire. I can't even imagine having that thought. (laughs) I don't want to be a billionaire. I don't need that money. Right, yeah, (laughs) right. But at the same time, I think partly through my own mistakes and also through watching the mistakes of my clients in psychotherapy and in coaching, that if you don't live your life as close as possible to your own terms, or at least don't strive to increase your own terms in your life, you actually feel really lost because you don't have what I call this mental six pack, right? It's like if you're doing any kind of physical exercise, you need to have a strong core if you're going to move anything. You can't only develop your biceps and have no core because at some point, a lot of the strength is coming from your core. Similarly, the unfocused circuits are what will build this mental six pack that you need because that contributes heavily to your sense of self. And so when you make mistakes, they're your mistakes and you learn from them. Like you're not making somebody else's mistake. And just to make the point about this, for me, one of the most inspiring stories that I told in the book was the story about the One Laptop for All project, which is a bunch of laptops were given to kids in Ethiopia who had never even seen any technology. And so the question was, what are they going to do with this? Are they going to eat it? Are they going to sit on it? <laughs> right. Are they going to lick it? Like, you know, if you've never seen technology, you're not you're not going to necessarily think, let me press a button. Right. Or, let me cook food on this thing, maybe. I'll put it over a fire and roast, roast a duck on it or something. Yeah. Right. But what they found was that within a couple of minutes, they found the, the on-off switch. A couple of days, they were singing ABC songs. I can't remember the exact period of time, but they eventually hacked Android. And so, you know, they asked, like, how do kids who know nothing about technology learn how to hack Android? And so my feeling about this is that while education plays a vital role in helping us acquire knowledge and it gives us a vital set of skills to understand things, you can't let education lead you. You've got to use your education to your advantage. And I tried this as an experiment with a group of executive coaches who are very high-powered in their fields, wanted to learn how to apply brain-based coaching to their work. I had a piece of technology, and I said, okay, I'm going to give you 30 minutes. Let's see what happens. Nobody went anywhere. They said, where's the instruction manual? I was like, you know, you don't need an instruction manual to walk. You know, Imagine if kids were like, I'm not going to walk. Like, no way. You need to tell me step-by-step, how do I do this? And so I think we've become obsessed with this question of how. I think, on the one hand, I like providing frameworks. I like saying, These are the five ways you can move blood from your fear center to your thinking brain. People know that, they can do those exercises, and it's cool. On the other hand, I feel less interested in being an advice giver and more interested in being a wisdom activator. And so a lot of what I want to share with you and anyone who's listening to this today is that the answers really are often within ourselves. And we're duped by this notion that perception is accurate. Because if you look at any scientific study, you will see that visual illusions abound. The way the brain constructs information is completely nonsensical. I mean, it's just, you give it three pieces, it'll just fill in the gaps however it wants to fill stuff up. You know, we construct narratives about our lives that are completely unreliable. Our memories, we're convinced by them. The information that comes from external perception is helpful, but it is often very off. And so it makes sense that we'd want to integrate this with some kind of internal movement to discover these other aspects of consciousness. And I think to those people who are saying, well, that's great, but what do I do? (laughs) I would say the very first thing I would ask you to do is think a a little bit like a scientist. I call this possibility thinking. And if you're stuck, and if you don't know where to go in life, and you don't know what your next career move should be, 
or you don't know how to get to the next income level, ask yourself, if this were possible, what would I need to do? Because most people spend their time saying, I don't see any way I can make this money, so it must not be possible. But when you say something is not possible, your brain says, thank you, good night, I'm going to sleep. Right. No need to try. Case closed, wash your hands of the whole thing. Right. If you say something is possible, your brain stays online. And if you compare these to placebo studies, what's going to happen is you're going to get more dopamine in your brain. So you're going to feel super jazzed and rewarded. And you're also going to get more opioids in your brain. So you're also going to feel more relaxed. And who doesn't want to feel relaxed and motivated at the same time? We'll be right back with more from Srini Pillay after these brief messages. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And now for the conclusion of our interview with Srini Pillay. Sounds nice. I think there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley that spend all the all day chasing something like that. Right. So I, I think possibility thinking is, is one of those things that can really get us jump started. I always ask people, I say, do you want to live an exceptional life, right? And they're like, everyone says yes. And you say, well, by definition, an exception is outside the norm, which means the norm is high probability and the exception is low probability. Now, when you want to live an exceptional life, what you're telling me is you want to live a low probability life. So don't ask me how likely is this, because that's not the question we want to ask. Right. The answer is not very likely by definition, right? That's right. What we want to do instead is ask what's possible. Like, what do the exceptions do? Is there any person in the world who at one point was making 50 grand a year who ended up making $50 million? There are plenty of sure. examples. Of yeah, of course, like there that, has right? to be. I don't have any on deck, but I guarantee you that there are. Yeah, you know, is there any somebody who was like, you know, 300 pounds who ended up being 180 pounds? Absolutely. Is there anybody who was sort of single until they were 60 and then found somebody? Sure. These are not the rules. These are the exceptions. So we want to learn how to reflect on the exceptions, understand the exceptions, and then not be afraid to live outside the norm. So studies show that people who consider themselves normal are conscientious and they're hardworking and people tend to like the whole normal thing. But the problem is they lack one vital element, which is called openness to experience. And when you lack openness to experience, which is a well-studied criterion, then you lack creativity and you lack the ability to get yourself out of a jam. Because then you're like, I work so hard, like, I don't know what to do. Because you're not open to the possibility of being like the exception. And that's another kind of unfocused, because most people do not spend any time in their days. You ask anybody, I mean, I did this as an an exercise once with my friends. I said, how often do you sit down and literally like have a thought, like, what's possible for me in my life? And most people are like, I'm too busy to think about what's possible. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, well, don't say your brain is dumb. Because your brain is not dumb. You're just not feeding it the right information. Like, you're not asking it what's possible. It is interesting to see this in action. I was visiting my cousin in New York a couple of months ago, and he said something really strange to me. We're from Michigan. He grew up in a rural area of Michigan. I grew up in a less rural area of suburban Michigan. I said, yeah, man, you know, you live in New York now. This is crazy. The whole family still lives in Michigan. And he goes, yeah, you know, once you moved out, I just thought, wow, I guess we can move out of Michigan. So I moved to California. You know, my girlfriend was from New York and I thought, 
well, that's cool. I'll go visit New York. And now I live in New York. And I thought, yeah, that's how that works. And he's like, yeah, but you don't understand. I had never thought for one second that I would not live in Michigan when I grew up. That's the reason I probably think about it is because I was an exchange student when I was in high school and I moved to Germany. And so, of course, I could live anywhere. I live in Germany and I'm in high school. What's next for me? And everybody else in the family had just never left Michigan, didn't leave till after college. And then once he did it, my other cousin moved and then another cousin moved and another cousin moved. And of course, the family's like, thanks a lot, Jordan. But all the kids are gone. (laughs) But nobody had really thought of it. And I guarantee you, I wouldn't have thought of it had I not schlepped off to another country at such a young age. I think that totally makes a difference. And it's funny because it's those physical moves that can often change the way you think. You know, there's a whole field of neuroscience called embodied cognition. When you move, you actually change the way your mind works. In fact, one of the unfocused techniques that I talk about in Tinker is the technique of walking. So studies show that if you walk outside, it's more helpful for creativity than if you walk in a treadmill. So you may be losing calories in the treadmill, but it's not going to help your creativity as much as walking outside. And the second fact about walking is that if you walk on a meandering path, you are much more likely to be more creative than if you walk around the block or if you walk in a rectangle. So you're talking about you travel all that time and space away. I mean, talk about meandering. It's like it's somewhere else. You're discovering something. You have to rely on your ingenuity in a new place. I totally relate to that. In many ways in life, I find myself stuck as well. So it's not like because I know all these things, I can just pull this all off in like two minutes and (laughs) just do that. The process of life is a process of continuous learning. I'm from South Africa, and I was from a a pretty rough neighborhood, grew up in that neighborhood, very loving family. So it was like getting my feet powdered while there were gunshots outside the flat. It was really sort of like a- That's crazy. Look at that juxtaposition. So it was kind of like watching a ballerina on my mother's powder puff sort of go around to Chopin and hearing those sounds outside. It was, you know, but I always had a dream, and I always felt like there was a way to get out of there. I remember standing at a conference, and it was after medical school, I saw this guy talk on a topic of water intoxication, and I was just completely nerded out on it. I was like, oh my God, this guy is unbelievable. I want to talk to him. But you know that feeling you get when you really want to talk to someone, and then it didn't happen. Disappointed, I walked outside, waited for a car to pick me up, and he came and stood next to me. I don't know what got into me. I can theorize about this. But I looked at him, and, and I said, you know, I just came to your talk. It was really amazing. And then I said, can you tell me something that will change my life? Now, you know, that's not like a specific question I ask anybody in general. And he looked at me, he was a bit taken aback, and he said, well, what are you interested in? I said, well, I'm really interested in studying the science, the brain science behind mood changes. And he said, well, you know, at that time, apartheid had not dissolved in South Africa. He was like, well, I work at the University of Stellenbosch. A scholarship is due tomorrow. We've never given it to a person of color, and we've never given it to anyone interested in studying psychiatry. So why don't you fax it over to me? I'll walk it over to the committee. That's a possibility, right? I said, yeah, well, thanks. What were you thinking right then? What were you thinking right Were you like, I'm going to do this? Or were you like, there's no way this is going to work, but I'll just do it anyway? With what I remember was not feeling like there's no way it's going to work. I was kind of excited beyond my dreams to have that opportunity. And I think like a lot of people who want to be successful, I have like selective forgetting. So there's probably many times when I've tried things and they didn't work. But in this particular instance, I faxed it over and I was like, well, if it works, it works. That'll be great. He got it, walked it over, called me and said, guess what? Congratulations, you just won the scholarship. It's the first time. And so I made this move to another province. And from there was where I called Harvard on a whim and was just like, I'm sitting here in a small dorm room in South Africa thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great to be at Harvard? And 
I called to speak to the head of Harvard because I didn't know who to speak to and got <laughs> yeah. through several exchanges and eventually got through the head of psychiatry, then got through the head of the medical school psychiatry. He told me later, I thought you were crazy, but you know, I had to say the decent thing. So I said, send me your CV and a note and we'll circulate it and see what happens. And there too, a couple of weeks later, I got a FedEx. First, I had an interview and then I got a FedEx and said, welcome to Harvard. And I was like, this is weird, right? Because they're probably, and yes, I mean, I needed to have the grades to get in, blah, blah. But there probably were a lot of students around the world who had those grades to get in. But the thing that makes a difference is whether you bother to believe something is possible. And so one of the reasons I say that this doesn't always work is that you know, being an entrepreneur, I'm rejected many more times than I am accepted on a day-to-day basis. Like my email box is filled with emails that make me mildly ill from the morning <laughs> to the evening. But at the same time, when I think about this theory of positive disintegration, which this Polish psychiatrist Dabrowski came up with, he studied people and said the people who are successful are the people who realize that when they feel like their lives are coming apart, they're coming apart for a reason. Because the puzzle pieces need to be reconstituted so you can strengthen your life and develop a higher level of life again. Those who give up when they come apart don't realize that the opportunity is to put themselves together again. And I think that's what keeps me going. And I think that's what keeps most people I've seen who persevere going, that we, our brains do have a way of reconstructing information. And the unfocused circuit is the path to that. This is so great, Srini. Thank you so much, Dr. Srini Pillay. The book is called Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you. Great big thank you to Dr. Srini Pillay. The book title is Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoy this one, don't forget to thank Dr. Pillay on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Dr. Srini Pillay. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. As usual, we'll be replying to your questions and feedback for Dr. Pillay on Fan Mail Friday. If you're looking for the show notes, tap your phone screen. They should pop right up. Of course, you can find this by going to theartofcharm.com slash 643. Also want to encourage you to join us in the AOC Challenge. You can find that at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or by texting AOC that's AOC, to 38470, 38470. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, improving your connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It is free. A lot of people don't know that, but that's free. It's the idea. It's a fun way to start the ball rolling, get some forward momentum. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. That includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. It'll make you a better connector, it'll make you a better networker, and of course, it'll make you a better thinker. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text AOC to 38470. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People. Transcription by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay AOC the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment, and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with your friends, share the show with your enemies, stay charming, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. <laughs>